The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. If you are going to use one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can follow along. That's on page 712. So my morning today began much like my morning does every day. My alarm went off, got up, went downstairs and read my Bible and then went upstairs and put on my my running clothes and started to run towards uh, towards the south on 17th. And when I got to D, D Street, I heard this, heard this crackling and popping sound um, that was off to my left. So I kind of looked around, and at the top of a top of a power um, power line, there was like the the box up there, and it was it was kind of sparking and blue and kind of going crazy. And um, so I thought somebody ought to take care of that, and then I just continued on my run. <laughs> um, and then when I I need to fix this because this is going to make my wife crazy if that is not there. Um, so I just went on my run, and I got home, and we are, we are those people. We are having, Ann and I were having this conversation uh, yesterday. We have, we have lots of lights hooked up to, like, hooked up to our Alexa device. Um, so if you ever come to our house and you, you go to throw a switch, there's a possibility that nothing's going to happen because we have everything wired. So I walked into the house after the run this morning and it was dark. And I seem to remember that I left one of the lights on in our living room. So I said what I always say walk, when I walk into the house when it's dark. I said, Alexa, tall lamp on and nothing happened. And I was like, oh, that's right. There was that power box that somebody needed to take care of. So we didn't have any, we didn't have any power in our house this morning. And what was, what was interesting about that over, for me, over the next 30 minutes, because I come early to the building on Sunday mornings, over the next 30 minutes, I'd like grab the flashlight out of my car, because that's where I keep it. That's the best place to keep a flashlight. And we lit a few candles. And it was just odd being, being in the dark. It was a little bit, it was a little bit off-putting. And something uh, weird happened that I didn't realize that I didn't do until I got here. The, the darkness had thrown me uh, so off that I forgot to wear a belt this morning. So I called my wife and said, hey, when you come, would you bring my, would you bring my belt? This is where it is. This is where it's hanging. It was just really strange as I was thinking, as I was kind of going through all of this today, knowing what we were going to talk about this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I think that that this was a bit of a metaphor uh, for a spiritual reality. See, there was this this crackling, popping noise that was going off, and I, I didn't really know what it was. And it wasn't until I looked at it and I saw it for what it was that I had an idea of what was taking place. And again, I think this is a bit of a spiritual metaphor that I'm going to talk a little bit more about today. But one of the things that that we need to understand when it comes to spiritual things, that unless and until God opens our spiritual eyes, we are not going to be able to recognize reality. 
This is a pretty brutal truth for us. And as I've been thinking about this text throughout the week, I kept having these reminders of, of Scripture, throughout Scripture, where, where Jesus had these different encounters with people who were blind. And as I thought about that and reflected on that, one of the things that, that I observed is that physical blindness in the Scriptures is typically a metaphor for spiritual blindness. There's a lot of connectedness. When people are physically blind, there's also a spiritual blindness component. So one of these is from John chapter 9. I'm not going to read all of John chapter 9. If you're going to use that pew Bible or that seatback Bible, you can look on page 68. I'm actually just going to talk a little bit about the story, then I'm going to read, read the end of, of John 9. But uh, Jesus and his disciples are, are walking, and they see this man who's been blind by birth. And his disciples ask this question that was very logical in their day. Why, why is this man blind? Did his parents do something? Did he do something? Why is this man blind? And Jesus gives this response. He says, this man's blind so that the power of God may be seen in him. So, so Jesus heals the man, and it's kind of a long story again. I want, you to, I want you this week sometime to just read through John chapter 9. It's kind of this long story where, it's, of course, it takes place on the Sabbath, which really irritates the Pharisees. That Jesus would heal this blind man on the Sabbath. So they, they call the man in and they are, they are accusing him. Well, maybe, maybe he really wasn't the guy that we all know he is really the guy. Maybe, maybe something else was going on. And they call the guy's parents in and they have this big conversation and this big discussion. And a little bit later um, in the Sabbath on that day in John chapter 9, Jesus kind of hears all of this is taking place. So in verse, um, I, don't, you know, I don't know, it's at the end of chapter 9. I didn't write the verse down. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. Listen to what Jesus says. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said. And he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, and here's the, here's the spiritual connection then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we are blind? So we have this moment where there's this physical blindness and Jesus heals this man, and it's a metaphor for spiritual blindness and Jesus says, well, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. See, Jesus is bringing this spiritual truth out of this physical reality. That there are people, there are people who are blind. Some of those people know that they're blind. Some of the people don't know that they're blind. There's another blind scene in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. This is on page 627 in those, in those Bibles. When they arrived in Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. This is where things get a little weird. Then, spitting on the man's eyes... He laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? 
The man looked around. He said, yes, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Jesus placed his, man, his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. See, there's this spiritual metaphor going on in this text that sometimes sight, spiritual sight, takes a while to come into, come into its fruition. Sometimes we need multiple applications of Jesus We need multiple encounters with Jesus to fully grasp what Jesus is trying to accomplish in our life. And then if you were to flip forward to Acts chapter 9, page 684, this is is the scene where, where Saul comes to Christ. Saul is a Pharisee at this point in the story. He was there when Stephen was martyred. He was, he was watching the clothes of the people who were throwing rocks at Stephen's head uh, with the intent to kill him, to murder him for proclaiming the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. And, and Saul is on a mission. He's going from Jerusalem to Damascus because there are some Christians in Damascus. And Paul's mission as a person who misunderstands what his purpose is as a follower of God, is out to kill those Christians. And instead, what happens is he encounters Jesus. Falls off his horse. He's, the text tells us he's, he's blind. He's made blind by this encounter. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And as we kind of read through chapter 9 of Acts we see that uh, Jesus or Paul is told, Saul is told to go to, um, go to Damascus and go to the street called Straight where he's going to meet a man named Ananias. Spirit also goes to Ananias and says, hey, I'm sending you a guy named Saul. What you need to do is you need to welcome him and you need to care for him. And Ananias is like, uh, that dude is killing us. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, I know. But he has encountered me. So Saul goes and interacts with Ananias, and Ananias tells him, essentially shares the gospel with him. And the text says something interesting. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. See, there's this situation that's taking place where where Saul's physical blindness was a spiritual metaphor for for him being unable to see the reality of who Jesus is. So we see these three scenes and what these three scenes really tell us is that even those and this is a warning even those who are pursuing God it is possible for us to be spiritually blind. It is possible for us to miss the reality of what God is doing. And the church in Corinth, as we've been talking about now for the past month, the church in Corinth has it all wrong. They have the gospel all wrong. They've been operating out of a misconception of the gospel. They thought they knew what the gospel was, but by their behavior, by the things that they're doing, by the fruit in their lives, what they're demonstrating is they don't really understand the gospel. 
They thought the gospel was dependent on the rhetorical gifts of the speaker. So if we don't have someone who can share the gospel well, the gospel's not going to grow. So Paul told them that God used those that the world considered foolish, powerless, and despised so that God alone would get the credit. It's not about the speaker, it's about God. They thought that people could only be swayed by powerful and persuasive speeches, eloquence. And Paul reminded them that when he came to them, he was in fear and he was in trembling. Because God's power, and this is important, God's power isn't dependent on how well his people can argue others into the kingdom. God's power is not dependent on how well we can argue other people into the kingdom. Because the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is not dependent on our words. The Corinthians are a prideful and arrogant people. And what we're seeing in these first four chapters is the way that their prideful arrogance is impacting the way that they are with one another. He's going to get to the way that their arrogance is affecting people outside of the church. That's chapter 5. That's where we're going to pick up in February of next year. But for right now, what Paul is trying to do with the believers in Corinth is he's trying to get them to look inward. He's not not realizing and not not recognizing what's happening in the world all around them, all of the bad things all around them. But Paul's point at this point in the letter is you, you guys need to look inward for a moment. See, your divisiveness is a threat to the gospel. The way you're falling into these traps of, I like this person, I like that person, I like this person more than that person. This person's a real Christian, that person's not a real Christian. This is divisive and it's a threat to the gospel. And for a people who thought they understood the gospel, they're actually pretty ignorant of it. So what Paul's going to do is he's going he's to turn their eyes back to Jesus. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to God. This morning, we're going to look at um, verses 6 through 16 in 1 Corinthians 2. It's on page 712. And we're going to ask it. We've asked these questions before. One of the things we're, one of the things we're trying to do here at Westway is not just, not just tell you what it says, but to equip you in this. So three questions that we can ask of a text, any text that we read in the Bible. What does it say? What does it mean? What am I supposed to do with it? One of the things that I've done in that, that filament journal that we have on the blank side, just on each page on the blank side, what does it say? What does it mean? What am I to do with it? So what does it say? Let's read 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. Yet when I am among mature believers, I do, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would have not crucified our glorious Lord. 
That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit, for the spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, which is a really, you know, just sidebar. I don't have time, but we're going to do it anyway. That's a really good sidebar. If you're one of those people who's constantly trying to figure out what other people are thinking, if you're one of those people who's constantly putting thoughts into other people's minds about how they think about you, how they feel about you, I give you 1 Corinthians 2, 14. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we've received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can fully know, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's word to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things because, for we have the mind of Christ. So there's a lot there. What does it mean? I found the best thing to do when I'm working through that, those three questions. What does it say? Just read it. And then what does it mean? I kind of go through and I, I, I paraphrase it. I rewrite it. Here's what Paul is saying. I use words of wisdom, not of math or science or worldly philosophies, but wisdom of the mystery and reality of God. And this sounds like foolishness to people who are not spiritually minded. The words of wisdom that I share are the, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I speak words of wisdom that come from God's spirit, things that only can be revealed by him in his grace. This past week, one of my, one of my five-minute reader friends said this, there are certain things only the Spirit of God can reveal to us. The mystery is Christ dying for us. See, there are lots of things that we ask God to reveal to us. There are lots of things that we want to know. We want to know what God's will is. We want to know where we should live. We want to know what college we should go to. We want to know what job we should go to. We want to know if we're going to get married. We want to know who we should marry. We ask God lots of questions and the mystery of Christ on the cross is actually the most important answer that God could ever give us. This is the thing that we ought to be living our lives in pursuit of. And this is, this is the foolish message. Because we, we think we want to make life about all of these other things. It's not that they're not important. They're not the primary thing. They're not the main thing. That's what Jen, said, Jen Dillinger said last week. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is that Christ died on the cross for you. And if we're out there trying to find all of these other answers to all of these other questions, and we don't find the answer to that question, it doesn't matter. 
This is the ultimate question. This is the ultimate answer that God has for us. This is the mystery. And it sounds so foolish, doesn't it? Like if we take off our Christian hat for a moment, we try to take off our Christian hat for a moment. Isn't the gospel of Jesus just foolish? Like when I think about what's going on in my life, when I think about the hardships that I'm facing, when I think about all of these other things and someone comes along and is like, hey, Jesus died for you, aren't in the back of your mind, you're like, that's great, thanks, but I need to know this thing. See, it sounds so foolish to us. And this is why the rulers of the world killed Jesus. Because the people that Jesus was encountering, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, they they wanted to know all of the answers to all of these other questions. What can somebody do on the Sabbath? You can't heal that guy on the Sabbath. What are you thinking? And Jesus came to give them an ultimate answer to the ultimate question. And we killed him for that. This is what God's spirit reveals to us. We need spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, and we need a spiritual mind to understand the reality of scripture. And what this text is telling us, without them, we will not see. If we are not spiritual people, we will not see. And there are people that can't understand the gospel, and the answer is simple. Because they're not spiritually minded. They cannot know the thoughts of the Lord. They can't. They can't. Only those who have the mind of Christ can grasp them. See, this brings us back to Paul and his conversion. We would look at Saul's life. Even in the midst of his persecutions, if we understand what Saul's life was about as a Pharisee, as a Jew. We can flip back to the Old Testament and we can see the penalties for worshiping false gods. And Saul was on a mission to live out the truth of the Old Testament as he understood it. We would look at Saul's life prior to his conversion, many people, and say, you know, that, that he, is lit, he is on fire for God. He thought he knew lots of things. He thought he had a grasp on what reality was. But the truth is he had not encountered Jesus. And when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus that day, his entire life changed. I think it's safe to say the entire world changed. When Paul encountered Jesus in Damascus that day. Paul's mission eventually became to the Gentiles. Let's do a test. How many of us in this room are not Jewish? Keep your hand up. Like, look around for a second. We are... We are in this room today because Paul was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus because Paul had an encounter with Jesus. The gospel spread because of this. 
See, he hadn't encountered Jesus. He knew lots of things, but he hadn't encountered Jesus. And again, this ought to be a bit of a warning for us. Because it can be easy for us as Christians to be very comfortable and be very complacent with all of the, with all of the trappings of a religious lifestyle. Following all the processes and the protocols of what it means to be a Christian. But we might not know Jesus. This is a bit of a warning. So we have this question, the second question. So, so that's what it says. Right, that's what it means. What are we supposed to do with all of this? When we read these verses, what are we supposed to do? Well, I think there are a couple things. Number one, if, if you are not a Christian, here's what this text is saying. There are spiritual realities that you will never understand until you become a follower of Christ. You will never understand the spiritual realities because you are not a follower of Christ. And until you become a follower of Christ, you never will. One of the phrases that I've heard off and on, probably for the last 20 years, I'm sure it existed prior to 20 years ago. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And as I was thinking about all of this, I actually think those people have it backwards. At least that's what this text is telling us. Because spiritual people understand spiritual things. I don't think people are spiritual but not religious. I think they're religious and not spiritual. And the religion that they, that they have, the God that they worship is themselves. Because when you start having a conversation with a person who's spiritual and not religious, what you'll find is the God that they worship looks an awful lot like them. They'll say things like, well, the, the God I believe in, I wouldn't do this or doesn't do that or doesn't say this. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like you. So what this text is telling us is a very hard spiritual truth. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, this is really hard. I'm not sure that I buy this. I want to recognize to you that I get it. This is a hard spiritual truth. The reason you can't understand spiritual things is because you're not spiritual. That's what this text is telling us. And a question then maybe we ought to ask ourselves is, well, how, how can I come to Christ if I cannot understand anything spiritual? That'd be a really great question for you to ask. Well, if that's true, how can someone who is not spiritual come to Christ? Again, Scripture tells us some really amazing things. I'd encourage you to spend some time in Romans 1 this week, especially like 18 to, to 21 talks about how God has revealed himself through what's been made so that we can look at nature and um, we can see through, through all the things that we see, God's invisible qualities. And as I was thinking about this again this morning and thinking about that snap, crackle, pop off to my left, this morning out on my run, what I, what, I, what I believe is true, what I know is true, is that we are surrounded by spiritual realities and noise. 
I think when Paul wrote Romans 1, he was saying that, that deeply embedded in creation is this, is this hum that points to God. And as we would read through Romans 1, if we would simply acknowledge that as true, we would hear that noise and we would turn to look. That snap, crackle, pop off to my left this morning, it was only when I turned to see what it was that I knew what it was. And I believe what God is doing is he's, he's hiding in plain sight. It's not a mystery in the sense that God is hiding from us, unable to be found, unable to be seen. And what we need to do is we need, uh, we've been watching Survivor over the past couple weeks. And if you've ever watched Survivor, they always have all of these different challenges that they do. And it's like you got to jump in the water, swim out to this thing, go underneath, find a key, come back up, go unlock this, then do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Like 85 million things. And sometimes I think that we think that this is how God will be found. And if I can just find the right code, I'll find God. And God's here. He wants us to acknowledge him See, if you're not a Christian, you need God to know God. You need God to know God. Jesus says this way, ask, the answer will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find, and knock, and the door will be opened. So if you're a person who's not a Christian, and you're trying, to, you're trying to figure this whole Christian thing out, you're trying to understand this whole Jesus thing, you hear in the crackle pop, and what I would tell you to do is to ask, God, open my eyes. Give me spiritual eyes to see. Give me spiritual ears to hear. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to read your Bible. And what I would encourage you to do as you begin to read your Bible is ask God, God, give me spiritual eyes to see. God, give me spiritual ears to hear. God, give me a spiritual mind to understand this. And I have some good news for you. He will. And I have some bad news for you. Until, unless and until, you give your life to Christ. There will be a ceiling on your ability to understand. There will be a ceiling above you. That you will not be able to break through unless and until you accept Jesus. Unless and until you become a follower of Christ. Why? Because spiritual people, unspiritual people can't understand spiritual things. So you'll read your Bible and you'll feel yourself being closer and closer and closer and you'll develop a hunger for it. And then at some point you're going to you're going to plateau. Why can't I get through this? Why can't I get through this? Why can't I get through this? You have to understand that Jesus died for you. You have to accept that Jesus died for you. That's the most important question you can ask of the text. So if you're not a believer, 
I love you so much and I'm giving you the answer to your question about why you have not been able to spiritually grow past a certain point. It's because you're not a spiritual person. And that's good news. Because to be a spiritual person, all you have to do is accept Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord. That's all you have to do. Well, a lot of us in the room are Christians. So then our question is, what, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me as a follower of Christ? How am I to respond? I said this earlier. I think the number one thing that you can do as a follower of Christ, as you think about this particular text, the number one thing that you can do is be on guard. That's the number one thing I think you need to do. Spiritual blindness is a real thing, and it's not only reserved for people who aren't believers. Paul had it. The Pharisees had it. We could read through the entire Old Testament and we would see all sorts of people who had all of the knowledge in the world about what God was calling them to and they didn't live any of it out. So if you're a follower of Christ in here this morning, you're wondering what, what might I do with this text? I think you need to be on guard because these scriptures tell us that even people who are pursuing God can be spiritually blind. Here's the second thing as a Christian. You need to know God. You need to, you need God to know God. Which sounds an awful lot like I said, something I said a second ago. You need God to know God. See, here's reality. If you are not actively pursuing your relationship with God, you are at risk of spiritual blindness. This isn't about checking the box of spiritual disciplines of reading my Bible every day or having the world's longest streak on you version. Hey, I want that too. Like I look at that number every single day. This isn't about spiritual disciplines for spiritual discipline's sake. This is about an awareness of what God is doing. This is about an awareness of the person that God is calling me to be so that I am not lulled into complacency. So that I am not lulled into a false sense of security. In chapter 3, which we're going to get to over the next couple weeks, Paul tells the church at Corinth, don't be deceived. You know why he says that? Because the church at Corinth was deceived. Because we are a people who are prone to deception. And we need God to know God. We need to be aware of what God is doing so that, so that we don't become comfortable. Yesterday, you probably knew this, there was, there was a, an eclipse here. I called it the ring of fire eclipse. We were at Zane's house yesterday morning um, watching Ohio State beat Purdue. Huh? <clears throat> you knew I was going to bring that up today. And we were watching the game. And Zane says, oh, hey, I think there's an eclipse today. 
So, like two morons, we went outside. Like two morons, we did this. And then we put on sunglasses, and then we tried to look at it through leaves. Like, then we got kind of sane. But there was this weird thing that was, that was happening. Like, whenever I would close my eyes, I would see, like, these two, these two things right in the middle of, of my eyeballs. And we started to have this question when we got back inside. Like, why, why is the sun brighter? And it's not. Um, like, that's not how that works. So I, so I, I was curious because I'm a closet science person. So I looked it up, and, and what happens is, I found this so fascinating, what happens is because there's, because there's less visible light outside, even when it's barely noticeable, it's still less visible light, what happens is your pupils open up. And when your pupils are open up, you're taking in not only more physical light, but you're taking in more ultraviolet light, and that's how you burn your retinas. And see, when you're looking out there, it doesn't necessarily look like it's darker. It's not until you look at the light. It's not until you look at the sun that you realize that there's actually something taking place. And as I think about the way that we can allow our senses to be lulled into complacency, we can just walk outside and not notice that it's darker and we just look up. And if we're not careful, if we are not consistently engaging in relationship with God, consistently pursuing him, what's going to happen is we're going to be caught off guard. We're going to become complacent. We're going to become a people who are spiritually blind, not fully taking in everything that God has for us. And this is why in Romans chapter 12 that Paul tells us, tells the church at Rome, tells us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, we need new minds. We need to be transformed. And it's fascinating the way Paul talks about this. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's kind of two things taking place here. God is the one doing the transformation. So in that sense, we are, we are passive, we are being transformed by God, but at the same time, we are actively doing something. We are receiving the transformation. We have to be willing to be changed. We have to be willing to be transformed. Here's the third thing. So Christians, be on guard. You need, to know God. You need God to know God. And then here's the third thing. You need to trust God as you seek to make disciples of others. You need to trust God as you seek to make disciples of others. We had this conversation a few weeks ago in our, in our Tuesday night small group. One of my favorite things about Tuesday night small group is not only do we talk about the sermon that, that we gave on the previous Sunday, but sometimes we talk about next week's sermon and then other times we talk about the sermon two weeks from now. And like all of that started to run together and this person asked this question specifically about verse 14. 
But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. We read, this person read that text and then asked this question. And this is what they said. Why can't my child get it? Why can't my child get it? Why can't my child understand these spiritual things? And then we reread verse 14. Because the problem is, people who aren't spiritual can't understand spiritual things. So for those of us who are racking our brains, trying to understand why the people in our lives that we are sharing the gospel with, why they can't get it. I need to tell you something. It's because they're not spiritual. I need to relieve some pressure on you. Because if we don't understand this as Christians, that is going to make us crazy. We're going to grow in our frustration and anger and bitterness as we try to share the gospel with people and no one's accepting it. And it makes us more angry and anxious and bitter and frustrated. And then they don't accept it. And more anger and anxiety and frustration. Why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? They can't. They can't. Unless... God does something in their life. And what I would love for you to do is you're in that space. I used the word relax last week, and I'm going to say it again. When you are interacting with someone and you are sharing the gospel with people, you know what you need to do? You need to relax. I'm not saying don't be urgent in the way that you communicate the gospel. I'm not saying don't take it seriously in the way that you communicate the gospel. What I'm saying is it doesn't depend on you. It's not up to you. And that ought to just free you. When I was in student ministry, we, would have, we had a lot of unchurched kids coming into our ministry. And there was this period of time where I thought to myself, we have these kids for one hour, maybe two hours a week, depending on what they come to. So my job on a, on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night when I have them here is to cram as much light into them as humanly possible. Cram, 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 cram. And then a couple things happened. Number one, I realized that all of these unchurched kids were going home to unchurched families where they were going to spend 166 hours a week with their families. So the two hours that we had them, I don't like those odds. And what I found was we were creating students that were anxious. So here's what I stopped doing. I stopped being anxious in the way that we presented the gospel. And what we did instead was we just welcomed and loved and we served the kids that came. That's all we did. We just welcomed them, loved them, and served them. And one of my favorite stories is this kid named Tyler. I was just talking, we talked about it yesterday with Zane and Stacy in between of making fun of him about Purdue. Um, 
we're talking about Tyler. Tyler had been in our youth group for probably, probably six months. And one night we were talking, why do you come to youth group? Why do you come to youth group? Why do you come to youth group? And Tyler's like, I just came for the food. And see what I know about me, probably a year earlier than that, that would have infuriated me. My guess is, for some of us, when we talk to people about the gospel or maybe we feel taken a little bit of advantage of by people who don't know Jesus, those kind of statements infuriate us. So Tyler makes this statement. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right. Got you, Tyler. Um, like five years later, um, I baptized Tyler in a pond actually just outside of Grand Island. We were going to Colorado on a youth trip and I baptized Tyler in a pond outside of Grand Island. And now Tyler's a youth pastor at a church in Ohio. And a few weeks ago, he baptized his grandfather. See, what we need to do, Christians, we need to trust God for the salvation of his people. We need to faithfully proclaim the gospel. We need to faithfully love, honor, and serve other people. And then what we need to do is we need to trust God for the salvation of his people. We need to realize that their salvation isn't in us. What does Paul say was... Were any, oh, let's even go back a verse. Has Christ been divided into factions? Listen to this one. Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. See, we weren't crucified for the sins of the people that we are trying to convert to Christianity, to convert to Jesus, to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. We weren't crucified for any of them. And I think sometimes we get this backwards where we think we were crucified for this people, so it's our job to save them. And what I would encourage you to do, Christians, is to trust God for the salvation of his people. Because God's got it. God knows who his people are. And what you will find is a tremendous amount of freedom in the way that you are around other people. You'll still be concerned about them. You'll still desire for them to know who Jesus is. But you won't be, ang you won't be anxious. And that's my hope for you, Christians today, is that you will trust God. That's my hope for you non-Christians, that you will trust God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning for 
those in this room and those watching online who are not followers of Christ. I pray that they would hear your spiritual noise and they would turn and look. I pray that the scales would be removed so they can clearly see the reality of their sin and their need for you. And then they will call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. I pray that they would see that they need you to know you. For my believing brothers and sisters in this room and watching online, God, I pray that they would be on guard. I pray that they would see that they need God to know God. And I pray that they would trust God as they seek to make disciples of others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.